Hello, welcome back to Forensic Friends. I'm your host, Shelly. And I'm sorry there is a bit of a delay if you're waiting for this episode on the week that it releases. I did make a quick little Instagram story about it being delayed because I think that's where most people are looking. I don't even know if I have access to the Twitter anymore. I'm sure I do. I just, like, I don't even know if I'm still logged into the Twitter. I haven't opened Twitter at all as of late, so I don't actually know. But yeah, I did make a little story saying that the episode will be delayed. And that's because I'm tired AF. I... My work schedule has kind of been all over the place and it's literally been changed on a day-to-day basis at points because the instrument that I've been trained on to do the COVID tests has basically gone offline. We're no longer using it until the new new instrument comes in, which it was recently installed and we're going to be trained on it and everything. But because I'm no longer running COVIDs, but I'm still full-time, I've kind of been just thrown in as an extra person. So I've been asked to work shifts that are different than what was originally on my schedule. And then some people have asked me to switch shifts with them. And it's kind of been all over. So I didn't have the time that I thought I would to work on this episode. So that is that. And I do apologize if the sound is a little different or if you hear more background noise than usual. It's because I'm currently recording in the basement. Um, because that's where my computer is, and I'm too lazy to bring everything upstairs, so that would be why. But yeah, today I wanted to jump back into Abnormal Psych and continue on with kind of the assessment and diagnosis process. I'm not going to go into like as much detail because the lectures do actually go into what happens in like a clinical interview and stuff, but I'm not going to go into that because like if you go to see a psychologist or a therapist, you will have that experience for yourself. So it's not like unknown information unless you obviously aren't going to see a therapist. Oh my god. I don't know if you can hear my dog upstairs. <laughs> she's she's yelling at someone to give her food. So we're we're just gonna power through that. But yeah, I wanted to just kind of give an idea of how a diagnosis might be made and kind of the process of that. So firstly, to get a diagnosis, the clinician the clinician would want to get a clinical assessment, which gathers information about the client. This doesn't necessarily draw any kind of conclusion or provide a diagnosis. I'll go a little bit more into detail in a second, but this is just getting information. A diagnosis is a specific classification of the person's symptoms with prognosis and such. And both the diagnosis, of course, and the clinical assessment are needed to determine treatment and intervention. So the assessment, again, provides uh, the clinician with some background information on the client. It lets them understand their personalities and their cognitive functioning. So this allows the clinician to also predict behavior. And by having an understanding of the client's problems, the clinicians can then determine the appropriate treatment that is going to hopefully work with that client. Because as I'm sure you are aware, everyone is kind of different and what works for one person 
might not work for another person. So in order to determine the best method to help a client through their problems, they have to consider all these other things about the client, including their personality, their previous history, like obviously what their chief complaint is, and what kind of support they have, all of that. And in addition to planning the treatment, this will also help the clinician evaluate the outcome and basically like if something worked, if something didn't work, then why and what can we do about it? Now, obviously, these methods must have some form of reliability. So there's actually some very specific terminology here that I had to look up because, again, the lecture notes for this class were terrible. But yeah, so in terms of reliability, firstly, we're looking at internal consistency, which is the degree of interrelationship among the items on a test such that they're consistent with one another and they're basically trying to measure the same thing. So if you are given any kind of psychological test or assessment, it's not going to be, it's probably not going to be incredibly broad because they're trying to like figure out one thing. Like you're not going to have a personality test, you know, your Myers-Briggs or whatever interspaced with like a test that's trying to figure out if you have an anxiety disorder or not. There's something called temporal stability, which is the reproducibility or the correlation between two measurements from the same test and the same subject taken at different times. So is this person going to answer the same way every time? The problem with recording in the basement is that I have even less privacy in here. You just heard my aunt letting my dog into the basement so that she could go to the backyard. Yeah, that's going to be a thing. That's the consequence I have for being too lazy to go back upstairs. Anyway, moving on. So another indication of the reliability of a test is the inter-rater reliability, which is kind of reproducibility among different evaluators. So would independent evaluators basically come to the same or similar conclusion using this method. The tests also have to have validity, so that includes content validity, so in general just how well does the test represent the thing that's being measured. An obvious example is if you're being evaluated for say a mood disorder, the questions are about your mood. Construct, vid construct validity is the degree to which a test is capable of measuring a concept. To me, this is a little bit like abstract to think about, but it's just a general indication of how good the test actually is, I guess. And then you have criterion validity, which is how well a test correlates to an established standard. So with this, there comes a couple different factors that play in, such as predictive validity, which is if there's evidence that a measurement is correlated to a variable being assessed. For example, if you have a test that's trying to predict the onset of a disease, the predictive validity would be strong if high test scores are already associated with individuals who develop that disease. So like the symptoms, for example, on the test already match up with people who have been known to have that disease. So basically, this is kind of like saying, 
are you correct? <laughs> like if this test kind of tells someone, oh, they've got, let's say, a more objective physical, physiological disease. So for example, um, looking at stuff like prediabetes, you know, someone's glucose levels or their HbA1c indicates that they are prediabetic. If the test has good predictive validity, then that person who is being told that they will likely develop diabetes will actually develop diabetes. Next, you have concurrent validity, which is how much one measurement is going to be backed up by another. For example, in a non-clinical setting, how does your self-assessment of your job performance compare to your employer's assessment? There is retrospective validity, which, like the name implies, is how much a test correlates to past occurrences of the subject or topic or thing that it's measuring. For example, um, in a test that's trying to measure the accident proneness of a person, they might look back at that person's archived medical records and figure out if this person who's scoring higher correlates with the fact that their history shows a high instance of walking into walls. And of course, all of these should be considering other sociocultural factors since these things change depending on the society that that person is living in. So moving on briefly to psychological testing, there are a number of methods, including, as I've said before, clinical interviews. Again, not going to go into those in detail, but basically the point of that is a sort of casual seeming way of getting more information about the client, which would include having an understanding of what the main reason or problem that the client has, understanding their own clinical history, including both psychological and physical health, their family clinical history, as some conditions are actually genetic or believed to be genetic, what kind of, like, what kind of social support they might have, other issues outside of the chief complaint that might also have an effect, that sort of thing. So there are some quote-unquote objective tests, which requires minimal interference and interpretation. These include the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, which includes over 549 true-false questions, which sounds like a total drag to have to do. And then the one that I think a lot of people might be somewhat familiar with is the revised psychopathy checklist. So this one, these tests are thought to be kind of like standardized. You don't need to look at, like into as many factors because potentially they're already comprehensive enough. And you have neuropsychological tests, which assesses the motor functions, cognitive abilities, and memory of a patient because this kind of thing does get affected in psychological disorders as well. These tests try to understand the brain-behavior relationship, and uh, some well-known ones are the Luria, Nebraska, and Halstead-Rayton batteries. Neuroimaging might also be a part of someone's psych evaluation. This looks at both the structure of someone's brain, so that's through CT or MRI scans, or the function of the brain, such as also MRI, the SPECT, and PET scans. And finally, you have psychophysiological assessments. These can include EEGs or electroencephalogram. Electroencephalogram, yes, that, which looks at brain activity. 
and also looking at event-related potentials, aka ERP, which made me laugh because that's a nerd thing, kind of. <laughs> if you know, you know. They also try to look at heart rate and respiration, the electrodermal response and levels, so basically sweat gland activity, electromyography, or EMG, which is muscle tension. And to some people, this might sound familiar, and that's because these are also the factors that are being used in what's commonly called the lie detector test, or the polygraph test, which is a tool, which is why it's not meant to be evidence, because there are a lot of other factors that can affect these physiological responses. There are also some psychophysiological methods of treatment, which, since the lecture note didn't go into, I decided not to look too deep into it, because I'm tired, okay? Finally, we're moving on to classification, and in case you couldn't tell, this is going to be a fairly short episode. To be completely honest, I just didn't have the attention span to do extensive research, and again, the lecture notes really frustrated me, so it was really difficult going through this, and it took much longer than it should have. But anyway, with classification, there's a classical or pure approach, which has very strict categories with absolutely no overlap. And then there's a more dimensional approach, which does have some overlap and I think takes into account more factors. Currently, the most widely used system, or at least currently at the time of this lecture, which was 2012, the two main systems are the International Classification of Diseases and Health-Related Problems, also known as the ICD-10. 10 is the most up-to-date version at that time, which was developed by the World Health Organization. And then this one might be a little bit more familiar because we, we have talked about it. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, aka the DSM, which was developed by the American Psychological um, Association. Currently, the most up-to-date version is the DSM-5. It was DSM-4 when I was in school, which again was about nine years ago. So there's that. Now the DSM is meant to aid in communication between a clinician and the client, determine prognosis. So chances of uh, recovery or like long-term effects of the disorder or diagnosis. And it will also aid in treatment and treatment planning. So the first two iterations of the DSM relied on mostly unproven theories and were thus pretty unreliable. The first one, DSM-1, was made in 1952. And the second one was 1968. DSM-3 had more detailed criteria. For each disorder with a multi-axial system, which was kind of like a multi-category system. And this was meant to be more evidence-based, but at the time it still had pretty low reliability. Next you have the DSM-4, which moved away from subjective descriptions to more objective criteria, and there's more emphasis on scientific rigor as understanding of mental health and psychology became just a little bit more developed. So I did mention the five axes. These describe basically a patient's full clinical presentation, both their person and their environment. So axis one is most major disorders. So we're talking like depression, anxiety disorders. Axis two are stable and enduring problems, including personality disorders and developmental disorders. Side note, the lecture used a very outdated and probably derogatory term to say developmental disorders, so I decided not to use that term. Again, this was 2012. And then axis three are medical 
conditions that are related to quote-unquote abnormal behavior. Axis four are psychosocial problems that affect function or treatment of that individual. And then axis five is the global clinician rating of adaptive functioning. So this is, I think, a means of figuring out how well a person will be able to adapt to regular life with their diagnosis. And the current iterations also do include some cultural factors, which some people might find controversial, but it is, as already discussed, a very important part of determining a person's diagnosis. And that's basically all I have, because the rest of the lecture notes for this particular topic, which is assessment and diagnosis, is like, I don't know, it, half of it is like not very specific, and then half of it is way too specific, and it's very confusing. So I'm going to leave it there. This was a very short episode, but it is what it is. Hopefully, though, the information was still kind of interesting and gives you a better idea of how of the kind of work that goes into coming up with a diagnosis. Now, I did talk about objective tests in this episode, and I know that there was a trend not too long ago of people going through the psychopathy checklist and being like, oh my god, I'm a, psych I'm a psychopath, or oh, thank god, I'm not a psychopath. Even though you might have a better understanding of how clinical diagnoses work, please do not self-diagnosis. A lot of these tests are really considered tools for a clinician. That's why they do a full clinical interview or other kind or like a multitude of assessments to figure out everything that's going on. The tests might seem straightforward to you, but I can tell you that there is a lot of complexity that goes into them and even the objective ones, which shouldn't have much clinical interpretation by the clinician, still should only be handled by the clinician. Um, especially because all of these assessments are subjective since they are self-reporting. So you don't have necessarily a third party there who is going through this test and and being able to understand what symptoms you might be mitigating or exaggerating, knowingly or unknowingly. So please do not self-diagnose. If you have any concerns, go see a real professional. And yeah, that's it. As per usual, if you enjoyed this and would like to continue hearing more, please subscribe or follow the podcast wherever you're listening. Write a review. That would really help. And you can find me on Instagram at Forensic Friends Podcast. And probably not on Twitter, but the Twitter is there at Forensic Fiends, like fiendish. And that's it. Bye. Bye.